FM and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on Radio 3. The time's 8.03 and this is Peter Lewis with the business and finance headlines for the 21st of February. Air traffic at Hong Kong's international airport jumped 29-fold in January compared with the same period a year earlier. About 2.1 million passengers passed through the airport during the month with traffic peaking at 80,000 passengers a day. The rebound in passenger numbers comes about after Hong Kong lifted most inbound travel restrictions and China's reversal of its zero-COVID policy. Hong Kong will allow retail investors to buy big-cap cryptocurrency tokens such as Bitcoin and Ether, according to a policy proposal released by the Securities and Futures Commission on Monday. The keenly awaited consultation paper sets out the security watchdog's stance on regulating cryptocurrencies and digital assets trading platforms. Under the new proposals, retail investors will be allowed to trade liquid digital tokens on licensed virtual asset platforms, providing safeguards such as knowledge tests, risk profiles and reasonable limits on exposure are put in place. The People's Bank of China Monday left its one-year and five-year loan prime rates unchanged for a sixth straight month in line with expectations. The one-year loan prime rate was left unchanged for February at 3.65%. Most new and outstanding loans in China are based on the one-year LPR. It also left its five-year LPR, which is linked to mortgages, on hold at 4.3%, also in line with expectations. Taiwanese exports fell by 19.3% year-on-year to $47.5 billion in January, less than a 23% decline in the previous month and below market expectations of a 25% drop. It was the fifth straight month of declines in shipments from Taiwan. Among major trade partners, orders dropped the most in mainland China and Hong Kong, tumbling almost 46%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investments. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And please keep all your messages coming. Text 6,500 JD Health added 3.2% and Li Auto gained 4.6%, with both stocks tipped to be added to the Hang Seng Index after a quarterly review later this week. The Tech Index, that climbed 1.3%. The Shanghai Composite surged 2.1% to 3,290, led by property stocks trading on mainland exchanges. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is 1% firmer at $83.90 a barrel. Gold is unchanged at $1,843 an ounce. 
All quiet in the currency markets too this morning. The euro is trading at just below $1.07. The greenback's at 134.29 Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.20 and a half cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and 43 cents. The Chinese yuan is trading at 6.86 versus the dollar in offshore markets. Bitcoin is up 0.6% at $24,700. Fairly quiet start in uh, Asia Pacific markets this morning. The SX200 is down 0.7%, but in Japan, the Nikkei 225 off just a quarter of a percent. Also, the Cosby in South Korea also off a quarter percent. And futures markets pointing to no change for the Hang Seng Index when it opens at 9.30 this morning. Eight oh eight. Let's welcome our Tuesday morning guests. We have with us James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. And also with us, John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Morning to you, John. Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter. Let's start with uh, interest rates in China. The People's Bank of China Monday left its one-year and five-year loan prime rates unchanged. That's for a sixth straight month now with no change. The one-year LPR at 3.65%. Most new and outstanding loans are based on that. The five-year LPR, which is linked to mortgages is on hold at 4.3%. But the average mortgage rate for a first-time buyer in 103 mainland Chinese cities fell to 4.04% in February. That's the lowest level since 2019. The rate's down 143 basis points from a year ago and six basis points from last month. And it means the average rate is now 26 basis points below the five-year loan prime rate. Uh, so, James, despite the no change in interest rates, uh, the authorities do have other ways, don't they, of trying to stimulate demand? Uh, yeah, I think the uh, low rates has, directly, has actually uh, uh, see some effects for the real estate market. And uh, we've heard different stories from different sources on the Chinese real estate market. But some of them, I would say about 60% of them are really positive, uh, both in the first-hand uh, market and in secondary market. And do you think that's true? Do you, do you believe those reports? Yeah, I, uh, it's not really reports. It's personal stories uh, mm-hmm. told by our friends. So I think... I think it's uh, most likely true. One of my one of my friends said he had a flat that he was going to sell uh, last September, and it was going out for the market uh, for about ten million yuan. It's not a first tier apartment. It's in Shanghai. It's along the river, and uh, he just put it out there uh, uh, this uh, this the past week again, and it was sold. For fifteen at one point uh, fifteen million yuan, and it's uh, a lot, mm. a lot of increase in price, and I think this is because uh, th- th- this is also explains why we see uh, state media starts to come out and tell people not to uh, get too excited about the real estate market again, because in first tier cities, the uh, the housing market seems to be on a pretty bright track. Mm. And, and the mortgage rate at 4.04%, that's sort of like quite a good psychological level, isn't it? Around 4% for, uh, for homeowners who either want to refinance or people who are thinking of buying a home. Yeah, I, think, I still think for people to 
uh, start to want to buy a new home, the uh, regulation needs to be put in place. Uh, the, the, uh, the, I, I can explain it how the uh, mortgage policy worked in China. It's not really the same as in Hong Kong. They don't really have a custodian for the money that you paid for mortgages. Mm. So uh, in case uh, for uh, the people who really need to buy a house, I think the, uh, these regulations need to, need to come into place. Mm. John, what are, what are your thoughts here? I mean, China does, hasn't changed interest rates now for, for six months, but yeah. then it doesn't necessarily need to change interest rates to control monetary, monetary policy, does it? It has a lot of other ways, particularly through adjusting liquidity into the interbank markets and what it's doing with mortgage rates, allowing uh, local authorities to bring yeah. them down um, below um, what is really the, the minimum rate that's normally allowed. Uh, yes, I think uh, China is probably in, in more or less the right place uh, in terms of interest rates and monetary policy. Um, we don't have a lot. There's not a lot of inf inflationary pressure, um, unlike uh, you know we, we've been seeing in other other parts of the world, particularly Europe. Um, the priority is to try and get liquidity back into the the housing market. Um, as I said before, I'm sure that's going to be a long and uh, <coughs> a long long road multi-year project um, but um, you know it's encouraging to hear the signs that there are already pockets of strength um, at least in the in the first tier cities there's a lot of talk <coughs> about around the time of the two sessions in March that's when uh, the authorities may go and cut interest mm. rates to try and stimulate mm. the economy then do you think that's um, a possibility do you think that's likely to happen well, I think it depends on developments elsewhere and, and in the economy. Um, I'd rather be focusing on uh, what's happening in the, uh, you know, in the private sector and manufacturing and so on. Um, mm. Don't forget we've seen uh, both exports and imports uh, declining. Um, so the trade, um, <clears throat> you know, the trade situation uh, is one, one to be watched. James, what, why is the PBOC pumping so much liquidity into the markets at the moment? We saw uh, on Friday it made its biggest one-day cash injection since records began. We saw that loan data, new bank lending in China, rose to a record high in January. Yeah. Is, is it a sign that the economy is still under the surface, is still struggling? Yeah, it is. If we look at the uh, the China credit impulse data uh, for uh, December, we've seen it suffered its uh, biggest monthly loss in about six months. So I don't think lending and borrowing uh, in, in, in in the Chinese economy is really uh, was really going anywhere. So that's why they they pump so many so much liquidity into the system, hoping that banks would lend to small to medium or small to micro uh, enterprises to revive the economy. But I think banks are still kind of hesitate in terms of lending those money out. Mm. And people don't want to borrow, really, do they? They're, 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 there isn't a great appetite for borrowing at the moment. Well, their, their sentiments start to change a little bit on the, uh, uh, the positive side. But yeah, for the small businesses that have harbored the past three years and uh, thinking about expand again i think it's going to take a little more time for them to really believe everything is getting better and it's mm. not going back okay john some, some other things i want to ask you about first of all the csrc the china securities regulatory mm. commission it's said friday that it's going to ease the path for mainland companies to list mm. on overseas stock exchanges 
The rules also apply to listings in Hong Kong of Chinese companies. Companies will need to get approval from uh, the, their own in- industry regulator before listing, um, and also they must register their intention with the CSRC in advance. What was interesting about this was that it's not going to ban this variable interest entity structure um, that a lot of companies like Tencent, Alibaba, has used to list in the first place, and also uh, companies that have already listed uh, can you know just carry on doing what they're doing. So do you think this mm. is a positive step forward? Uh, oh, yes, very much so. Um, uh, you know, here in Hong Kong, obviously, we, we want to see um the role play you know the role that's been being prescribed if you like as as being the conduit for uh inward investment to to china and and a certain amount of outward is um greatly reinforced by this and uh you know i think it's a, it's a good step in terms of developing the local um capital markets and hopefully it will have you know spill spillover effects into the into mm. the general uh, domestic economy here. I mean, as a, as a result of this, Chinese companies mm. last year they raised just two and a half, mm. two hundred and thirty million US dollars mm. in US listings. That's mm. less than two percent mm. of what was raised <laughs> in twenty twenty one. Obviously, this will help. Th- uh, help things come back when it but the days of those big blockbuster IPOs from from China have gone haven't they we're not going to see them again yeah so in uh, in in the US uh, uh, probably not Let's and not in they... Hong Kong either probably <coughs> um, well Hong Kong well, it remains to be seen I, I think um, you know as as things uh, as things develop um, I mean hopefully we're going to see Hong Kong playing a, a big big role mm. Well, what do you think, James, about this? You, you, you're obviously happy that this has been clarified. What, what sort of impact is it going to have? Yeah, it's, I think it's in line with what uh, China always, always wanted. They, they want, <clears throat> they want uh, secondary market financing for Chinese companies. So they want money coming in, uh, inside, uh, into China, not necessarily money coming out of China. And uh, I think uh, the United States is kind of uh, playing along uh, uh, Taking Nasdaq as a, as a as an example, uh, Nasdaq basically halted all Chinese up, uh, listings for about three months, uh, starting from last November, and then recently they've that uh, three Chinese companies listed, and uh, even though they they were pretty harsh on setting uh, please see conditions, for example, if you were a non-Chinese company uh, and you wanted to list on the Nasdaq, they probably only want three. 300 investors but for a recent uh, uh, listing of a Chinese company they asked the Chinese company to raise uh, 25 million US dollars uh, whereas uh, the rest of the companies only need to about raise about 15 million minimum and then they require uh, 1,500 investees, investors instead of 300. But mm-hmm. but but still it's a good sign they are letting Chinese companies listed in the US. Okay, so a good step forward. Um, John, Hong Kong's going to allow retail investors to buy big cap cryptocurrency tokens like Bitcoin and Ether. Um, The SFC has released its consultation paper on regulating cryptocurrencies and and the trading platforms. Now, since 2018... Cryptocurrency trading on license exchanges has been limited to professional investors, which is defined as individuals with a portfolio of at least 8 million Hong Kong dollars. That's 1 million US dollars. However, under these new proposals, retail investors are going to be allowed to trade liquid 
digital tokens on licensed virtual asset platforms, yeah. providing safeguards such as knowledge tests, risk profiles, and reasonable <clears throat> limits on exposure are put in place. <clears throat> and to be eligible, the tokens must be included in at least two acceptable indices issued by at least two independent index providers, the SFC said. So what do you make of that? Retail investors <clears throat> um, moving in the other direction here in Hong Kong to where maybe Singapore is going, they're going yeah. to be allowed here uh, to trade cryptocurrencies. <clears throat> Good idea or not? Um, well, I should disclose that I will almost certainly fail the knowledge test on, on uh, crypto. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, personally, but that's because I'm of that you know, certain age. Um, yeah, I mean, given all the... I, I think it's quite sensible, given all the, um, you know, the safeguards, it's obviously going to be pretty tight, tightly regulated. And in that sense, uh, I think Hong Kong is... Uh, getting a step ahead of, you know, a step ahead of the game. I mean, the, you know, the U.S. Um, regulators and so on are in complete disarray about the, you know, the fiascos on FTX and all the rest of it, and haven't got a, uh, you know, haven't even got a framework yet. So, from that point of view, if you believe in, uh, in the future of the, the this um, this sector, um, you know, why why not really? James, good thing or not, retail investors being allowed to trade cryptocurrencies? Yeah, it's a good thing. And uh, I think they are only allowed to trade spots and ETFs. And uh, the, good th the, 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 the best thing about this is uh, most of the, uh, the crypto investors that I know of, some of them professional, some of them retail, they really just buy and sell cryptos at uh, a, a local upstairs store and they, they grab the cash in a, in a duffel bag and then put them back in a bank uh, little by little. So mm -hmm. in other ways, banks do not actually recognize the uh, authenticity of this money. So if we uh, as Hong Kong brokers can start trade, uh, trade on behalf of our clients using omnibus accounts on different uh, authorized exchanges, then our clients can legitimately deposit those money uh, from crypto trading back into a bank. And that, uh, I think, solves a lot of problems. Mm. How do you feel about the fact that regulatory-wise, we're going in a different direction from other <coughs> jurisdictions? So Singapore is moving to ban cryptocurrency trading for retail investors. Now, generally, what tends to happen is regulators work together. They have a, um, an industry body called IOSCO. They don't like regulatory arbitrage between different locations. So we're going in one direction. Other, other centers are going into another. Um, is that okay? Or is there going to be some problems with that at some stage? Um, well, I'm all in favor of, uh, you know, each jurisdiction taking its own independent, uh, view um it's quite refreshing actually to see hong kong you know <laughs> going uh going going towards liberalization if you like but uh, i mean it's you know heavily circums circumscribed and there are a lot of protections for for investors in there and i think it's a very good starting point What's so it? i so i th i think it's uh, uh you know maybe Singapore's li missing a trick for a change Mm. What do you think, James? I mean, there's, we've seen the collapse now of several crypto exchanges last year. Uh, people have lost a lot of money um, on that. We're going in a different direction from places like Singapore because we want to be a cryptocurrency um, hub. Is it a good thing that you could potentially have regulatory arbitrage? 
I think I think Hong Kong the the exchange that are uh, that that are authorized by the SFC is going to be heavily regulated and uh, scrutinized and monitored along the way because right now we only have two right uh, and one of them really doesn't do anything the, the the other one is actually working on uh, working with different brokerages to to uh, let them be a partner a trading partner and uh, so for that one that is actually doing the work I think SFC has enough resources to uh, keep a monitoring routine going on for that uh, brokerage uh, for that exchange exchange but uh, for international exchanges apparently SFC is not interested at all Mm. If if um, if the, do you think these rules adequate enough to protect retail investors to make sure that their money is safe now and that uh, they're protected? I mean, obviously you can't protect them from market losses, yeah. but you want to protect them from the exchange collapsing and other scandals and other frauds. Are, are the, is this enough? Uh, I think re- the 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 bottom line is how the exchange can persuade SFC that it could. Uh, uh, Harbor custodian risks. So, because uh, when you trade when you trade cryptos, one exchange is one custodian. There is no banks for for cryptos. If Hong Kong is to uh, to set up another scheme to establish a, a TICUS, uh, whereas we we have stocks, we have CICUS. If you have token, you have a TICUS. If you have that system set up, then I think uh, retail investors' interests are going to be protected. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. Great to talk to you today and also over the past few years. Thank you very much for your contributions on Money Talk. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you both. That's uh, James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Times 8.24 on the phone from Tokyo is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Morning to you, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, we now know, don't we, the identity of the next Bank of Japan governor, uh, Mr. Ueda, but we don't know much about him. Is there anything you can tell us about him that maybe we haven't heard or don't know? Well, I'm I'm afraid I'm in the same position as everybody else. Uh, I think there was an unexpected uh, nomination, and as you said, there's relatively little known about this very well-respected uh, academic in monetary policy. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, people digging up old comments that might have been made uh, many years ago because, of course, uh, Mr. Ada was on the board of the Bank of Japan during 1998 to 2005. But I think that comment made then, for example, he had, he had said that, um, you know, there should be caution in, in raising interest rates. But that was at a very different time, of course. So I think um, it's very difficult to read into whether he's a dove or whether he's a hawk. One of the comments that he has made is that, and in line with uh, what, what everybody else is saying, really, is that uh, the, the stance of monetary policy in Japan at the moment um, is in line with uh, inflation expectations. So accommodation in monetary policy is um, appropriate. However, there, there would be calls for uh, some review of um, that stance should, should circumstances change.
Mm. Now, the Bank of Japan is going to meet in March before um, he takes over. Some of the gossip I'm hearing in the markets is that uh, the current governor, Hiko Kuroda, could surprise the markets by widening the yield curve policy control band uh, to, to increase it from 50 basis points, just like he surprised the market a couple of times last year. And, and the, the aim of that would be to help Mr. Ueda sort of get to the point where it's easier for him to normalise monetary policy. Do you think, um, do you think that's a possibility? Of course. I mean, it's a possibility, but it would be, um, you know, underpinned by an improvement in market functioning rather than anything about, um, you know, inflationary uh, concerns over the over the medium term. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, while inflation has, of course, picked up uh, in Japan, currently at 4%, but of course, this 4% is something that uh, incorporating base effects, which will eventually fall out of the calculation. So I think that over the course of 2023, uh, inflation is, is still projected to come in at under uh, the inflation target of 2%. So, you know, any tweaking in the monetary policy framework would have to be justified on uh, the grounds of market functioning or something mm-hmm. like that. And that would, of course, um, help uh, Mr. Oeda should he wish to um, normalise down the line. Um, given that the tweaks have already been made subsequently to the one that was already made in December, of course. How on earth does Japan get to a more normal monetary policy, given what it's done over the past few years? I mean, it owns more than 50% now of the Japanese government bond market. Its holdings uh, are more than the GDP of the country. It's suffering enormous losses as interest rates move up on on those um, holdings. How on earth does it get out of that and get even somewhere close uh, to a normalised monetary policy? Yes, this is a very difficult question. It's something that's um, you know, been on the table for, for decades, essentially. Um, there's a deflationary mindset which is attempted to being broken in, in the current years. Um, and one of the key uh, aspects is to push forward on, on wage growth. Um, there's a big uh, drive by the government to encourage firms to increase wages and create some sort of... A, um, aggregate demand based on this, and this would, of course, lead to more sustainable inflation over the longer term. There are problems, though, you know, for one thing, you know, the, the, the mechanism for increasing wages is not evident in Japan um, because of this deflationary mindset. And there's a, basically a lack of willingness of um, firms to increase wages because they don't think that uh, the, the price rises that we've seen recently are sustainable over the long term. But, you know, I think that wage rises would be uh, crucial to somehow normalise monetary policy in Japan. It's an odd situation, isn't it? It seems to be almost unique to Japan, where companies um, don't want to pay higher wages, but then employees don't want to ask either. Yes, you know, it's it's something that's been in place for decades in Japan, this inflationary mindset, and um, I hope that, it would eventually uh, turn around in the course of this year, but there's still a lot of uncertainty. I think that the large firms in Japan have indicated uh, a willingness to increase wages, but there's much more reluctance on the side of small to medium firms. And of course, this is where the the wage rise would need to be taking place because they employ most of the people. Around 70% of the the working population are in these firms. So there would be a need to, um, you know, for these firms to, to, to go through with the wage increases. But again, it's, it's very difficult to tell 
um, what will eventually happen. And you know, as you as you rightly say, um, you know, th- this will be the key factor which is going to determine whether we will see a, a monetary policy normalisation in Japan. OK, John, thank you very much indeed for that. That's John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 is down 0.1%. The uh, the, Cos- the ASX 200 in uh, Australia down about half a percent. The Cosby is up a little now. It's up 0.2%. Um, looks like the Hang Seng, though, is going to open flat in around about an hour's time when trading gets going here um, in Hong Kong. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning, as usual, at 8 o'clock on Money Talk. Back chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine and dry. The visibility is going to be relatively low in some areas at first. The maximum temperature is going to be around 21 degrees and the outlook is for it to remain fine and dry with cool mornings in the next few days. Temperature right now, 17 degrees, 66% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. Here's Carol Musgrave with the Half Hour News. The hospital authority has suspended the use of 16 public hospital operating theatres after surgical light screws came loose. Checks have been carried out on all lighting units made by the Swedish company Gettinger after one fell from the ceiling at the United Christian Hospital on Saturday, injuring an assistant anaesthetist. The HA says 16 of the 50 lighting units were found to have potential risks, forcing it to temporarily shut the affected theatres and reschedule some surgery. Medical sector lawmaker David Lamb says a full investigation is needed. We understand that the last checking was done in December last year, so it's only two months apart. So we would expect a very safe and stable structure up there two months after a normal checking. So we must investigate into that particular checking. What went wrong during the checking? Was it done according to the protocol? Or was there any breach of the protocol? Or have the personnel been fully trained for their job when they check the OT light. So these are areas that we have to investigate. It's almost a year since Russia began its attack on Ukraine. The war has had a huge impact on people living there, especially children. The international charity Save the Children has been assisting youngsters in Ukraine, including those forced to flee their homes. Its director of international programmes and advocacy is Helen Ianson. One of the most terrible statistics is that every day four children are killed or injured in Ukraine. So we've got a large number of children who are actually casualties of this war. And obviously living under such constant stress has really impacted on their mental health. So they've witnessed awful things, separation from their parents, from their family, from their friends. And many of them have had to flee. A Qingyi school says the government should intervene and ensure a lunchbox operator can safely provide meals for the hundreds of schools it serves. Ray Chan, the school's affairs chief at Yanchai Hospital Chuchang Hokwan Primary School, praised the students and mothers who helped feed the school yesterday, preparing 200 lunchboxes. After lunch and staff suspended services yesterday and today following cases of food poisoning, Mr Chan told RTHK that the school's parent-teacher association was prepared to go shopping again tomorrow should the suspension continue.
Uh, we don't have any update news, but you know, teachers, I think, is the profession is in education, right? We are not a professional in cooking. So, yeah, uh, finger crossed, wish everything will back to normal tomorrow. And the government should, I think, intervene with the food dealer to solve the problems. You know, meal for 100,000 children every day should not be delayed any longer. And I'll have more news for you at nine o'clock. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, chatbots and artificial intelligence. Much attention has been focused on the Microsoft-backed uh, OpenAI's chat GPT, which was launched last November. It allows uh, users to experiment with its ability to write essays, articles and poems, as well as computer code. However, the University of Hong Kong has issued a temporary ban on students using chat GPT or any other IA-based uh, schools for coursework, classwork and assessments. That's while it works out a long-term policy for dealing with the phenomenon. What do you think about this trend? Does AI have the potential to make our lives easier or does it 